When we're talking about living a truly free and independent life, we mean it. And that's exactly what Gary Collins, who is the creator of The Simple Life, set out to accomplish. And now you have a chance to learn all the secrets that Gary has developed over decades of trying it out himself, building these amazing courses, as you can go to thesimplelifenow.com and access three amazing courses, one being the Off the Grid Master Course, two being the how to finance your off-grid home course and three how to find your dream off-grid property course and get an awesome 10% off at checkout by using code TBNS10 that's right you too can learn how to live a truly free and independent lifestyle by living off-grid and all these amazing courses are delivered to you by yes one Gary Collins from the simplelifenow.com use code TBNS10 at checkout for 10% off your order and start living your free life today can I pause for a second and, and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Happy Monday, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thank you for joining us on another fun-filled episode. And if you're a YouTube listener, well, guess what? You are in store for the 8 p.m. premiere of The Brian Nichols Show here on Sunday, the day before it airs over on the audio version. So for you audio listener, let's go. Go ahead, hit that YouTube button and hit the notification bell so you're not missing every single episode that, that airs here on the program. And today, starting things off with Max Golker. Max is a great friend and a returning guest here on The Brian Nichols Show. And the discussion today is the lockdowns, but not in the way that you're used to here at the program, but rather about the messaging on the lockdowns. Max thinks maybe we went a little too far. Maybe we should have approached the lockdowns a little more and not in the ferocity that us libertarians did. I, I push back a little bit, but I think you're going to leave the conversation definitely feeling some value because this is a conversation we've been seeing had throughout the entirety of the libertarian uh, movement here over the past year, especially. So a great chance to uh, dig into some of those uh, differences of, of views, differences of perspectives. Overall, a great conversation to be had. So with that being said, on to the show, Max Gulker returning to The Brian Nichols Show. All right, and with that, joining us here on The Brian Nichols Show, for your first time, Max, as a member of The Brian Nichols Show video show, welcome, Max Gulker, to The Brian Nichols Show. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad to be here on, on video. I, this is, what, my fourth or fifth time we've done this? Something um, like that. it was audio before. Yeah, and almost all of our episodes always end up going pretty uh, pretty darn high in terms of the download numbers because folks are interested to hear an economist's take in terms of how yeah. libertarians would handle certain things. Yeah. So, Max, right. you've been... Right. Well, I like to think of myself as a friend of the show. So, Absolutely. You know, yeah, well, you're we'll fighting the good fight. On video, people want to download me quite as much. But, you know. <laughs> hey. 
you were over on Matt Kibbe's program and, and you had the video version there too. I, I don't think that did too that much. That is true. That is true. Um, you know, how have you been able to keep your glasses on with masks, by the way? Because I have not. I've like quit wearing my glasses because like they fall off anytime I have to put on a mask. It's a pain. No, it's, it's seriously a pain. And, and yeah, candidly, yeah. I'm at the point now where if, if I'm out and about, like, I mean, I'm not really going into too many stores with, without a mask on because in Philadelphia, yeah. it's it, like you are, they do have rules. I, I respect private property. Like if they say, please enter without a, or with a mask on, I'm going to yeah. respect that. Yeah. But when we're outside walking around, like right. I'm not going to be wearing a mask. I'm sorry. Like that's, that's just yeah, insane. Yeah, I, I generally don't, either. you know, I'll just, I just, because, you know, this is, this is relevant for, for this day and age. I'll tell you a quick story, which is that I was a little late in getting masks, you know, when this started and not because of like politics, but because I'm me and I just like, am, you know, like procrastinate, but one day I'm in this tiny little grocery store in tiny Hillsdale, New York, with these really short aisles. And I pass this woman, this, this old lady in a mask, and she looks at me like terrified. And I was like, you know what? Like, right or wrong, I don't want to terrify this woman. And uh, and so <laughs> I got the mask. Yeah, and I'm at the point, too, where, I mean, I, I was also not wanting to terrify people. But as right, things right. started to get more and more right. obvious, and I think really for me and a lot of people was when we saw the protests take place over the summer. And mm-hmm. we were out, we saw people outside in massive mm-hmm. numbers and cases didn't skyrocket. It was like, okay, if you're outside, you're going to be okay. And, and that's where I think people yeah. started to realize you could make calculated decisions, calculated risks. Mm-hmm. And it's funny here, we're already kind of just segueing into the, the conversations. I know yeah, one of the yeah. things we were discussing in you, you've kind of taken a little yeah. uh, issue with is, is how we've had the conversation about the lockdowns and, and how a lot of right. people are maybe more hesitant just based on the conditioning that they've had to experience through the mainstream media. I mean, it, I saw the, the, the crazy Gallup poll that if uh, you were a Democrat, you on average had, a, I think it was a 70 percent uh, more likelihood of thinking that COVID, you were, like that you either you knew somebody who got COVID or somebody who died of COVID or the, the severity of COVID. I forget the specifics, but that that number seventy percent higher that speaks to how there's a, a yeah. group of people out there who they I would say they're looking to be afraid <laughs> and have those fears right. covered by somebody, and in this case, covered by government. Right. So Max, help me out here. Tell me what your take is in a better approach of dealing with this, this COVID, uh, the COVID, I guess the COVID narrative, right? Well, I, I think that one thing that I, I don't know if it disappointed me, but um, it, it, because I don't know if I was surprised, but it was unfortunate is we, we found a way with this to have the same, to just project the same, since we theory be related to whether you're a conservative, liberal, libertarian, socialist, you know, it, 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 it's not, you know, it's, it's a virus. And yet somehow we found a way to do it. Now, um, there's lots you can blame on that. There's, um, there's, you know, people's assumption that government is supposed to save them. At the same time, government is very involved in our lives right now. Um, we may not like that, but um, we haven't convinced our democracy of that necessarily yet. You know, there might be reasons why that's unfair or the media, you know, is tilted a certain way. But um, 
you know, I, I think there was on every side, there was a lot of um, sort of assuming, you know, being shocked that the other side would think the way they did, um, which is funny because we tend to always have the same argument. So, um, you know, after that, I think if libertarians made, in my view, maybe one mistake, and let me try to explain why I think this is a mistake, it's, it's, it's a general habit we have that's called that, that that I like to call it's not that badism, right? Which is that um, you know the first time we ever talked was about climate change and stuff, and uh, I said, "Look, th this you know for for a long time the sort of party line was that it either wasn't happening or it wasn't you know, in a libertarian argument." Now, if you think that sort of, you know, the deck is stacked against you, I could see how that, you know, becomes resonant. But to me, the question was always, um, how do we, you know, attack this and solve this? And are there private solutions? And me trolling this, or too hard for to me, it was for right? Because that, that doesn't seem to have done all that well either. And, um, you know, similarly with the environment, similarly with, um, and so I think that um, had we, you know, the question with a pandemic is what does a private response to a pandemic look like? And if this pandemic wasn't that bad, well, we know there's other pandemics in history that have been bad. So again, is that a libertarian point or is that just a point about this pandemic? Um, so I would like to, you know, see us, especially those of us, you know, I, I don't really consider myself an academic. I'm kind of halfway between that and a commentator, but um, I'd like us to think about what that response looks like and talk to people about that kind of thing a little bit more. And I think maybe as folks like you were out there kind of directly on the ground getting involved in politics, um, you know, maybe maybe you start um, telling stories about where government went wrong and where if we let people make their own decisions and have individual freedom, um, maybe things would have been handled better. And, you know, I have my ideas about that, but but, you know, maybe you do, too. And I, you know, I'd love to hear those. Yeah, well, so the, yeah, well, the so one thing you mentioned mistake is that of of it wasn't that badism. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily, I think, fair. Because mm -hmm. I, I think when we start off looking at originally at the, the beginning of the pandemic, and you look at my show, mm -hmm. Tom Woods, I mean, Dave Smith, go right. through like the, the big libertarian channels. I think it was right. pretty much understood that this was a, a virus that a lot of people didn't know what was right. going on. But right. it seemed to be that it was impacting older people or right. people with comorbidities. And people right. who were obese or overweight more frequently. Right. And, and that seemed to be right. pretty safe to assume from the onset. But mm. even to say that was looked at as if it wasn't being taken seriously. But it's more so just trying to identify right. like the reality. And I, I think it's important because if we're not going to set the stage by looking at what the actual facts are, you do see a situation where you have folks who they do think that it's 70% worse than it actually is. And that's where right. it impacts real policy. Because what happened right. is we still have areas, I live here in Philadelphia, that, right. that you're still in a semi-lockdown state. And right. is it necessary? 
Is is a lockdown from an economic standpoint a necessary thing to be done to help contain a virus? And we're seeing right. across the board, no. So I say all that because it was because we weren't allowed to really question right. the mainstream narrative that was being pushed down from the federal right. government and from a lot of these very, uh, you know, like New York State went right into right. lockdown mode instantly. And and right. if you weren't allowed to question that, because if, if you did question it, you were you were told you want people to die or you're you're questioning the experts, you're questioning the science TM, right? Like, and that's where I think we, we had a lot of people who said, well, hold on. If, if we're not allowed to mm-hmm. question this, can we at least ask why? Right. And, and, but then, then we were told no. And I think right. that's where a lot of folks have, have gotten more and more weary as we've seen just an acceptance of a narrative, despite it being fundamentally not true at its yeah. base. Right. You know, I'll tell you something that I find interesting is that, and you know, when we talk about the lockdowns, we we talk about them as sort of one thing, as kind of the government flicking a switch and, you know, shutting everybody down. And I think there's a lot, especially for libertarians to learn, it's actually very good news for libertarians um, with respect to kind of looking at it um, a little bit more from what um, a hero to libertarian economist, Ludwig von Mises, called methodological individualism, right? Which he's said man acts right now what does that mean it means right it's individuals that act when we think about groups sometimes we like to personify them like they're people we like to say the state or the billionaires or wall street or that kind of thing but those are thousands of people interacting and sometimes we miss a lot we misunderstand a lot when we don't do that so like for instance my former colleague will luther who works at the sound money project at aier um wrote a paper very early on using some preliminary data where he showed that, um, you know, the shelter in place orders were not the only input to people choosing to shelter in place, right? Because it started before the order went into effect. Now you can't separate the fact that they expected an order to go into effect, but to me that, to me, so if you look at everything the government does is bad and say, well, sheltering in place must be bad, then, you know, that's sort of bad news. But if you look at it as that's a precautionary measure that some people are going to, that a lot of people are going to take anyway, then did you really need the government to, to, to issue an order to make a law about that? Or did you need, you know, I made a joke that you could replace the government with a mass email, right? You could, if you just got the info, now this would take a long time because again, people have come to be sort of reliant on this as an authority in their lives. And that we have to undo that in a way. And I think that there's that, that appeals to people in some ways, but they also don't kind of understand how that would work. But, you know, in this case, um, you know, now that we live in a world, you know, we, we, we like to talk about how social media screws this up and creates echo chambers and stuff. It also can disseminate information very fast. You can hear from your friends who you trust um, about these things. And so, you know, to whatever, again, this is less about did the lockdowns work? That's another debate. But, you know, assuming they did help, um, that information could have been passed along sort of person to person in a way that it couldn't have even been 20 years ago. And I think in general, that's really good news for libertarians. And finally, to me, the big mistake and the coercive, you know, 
anti-market, anti-economic mistake the government made was really shutting down the businesses because, you know, I, I, I don't like it when some, including many of my friends, um, you know, call this house arrest, right? Because, you know, nobody was sticking, I, I left my house every day, right? They, they said we could, they said you go to essential places, but there's the rub, right? They closed, but they took away, because they couldn't enforce keeping everybody in their houses, Right. What's the next best thing you can do? You can take away everywhere somebody has to go. But Max, can I play devil's advocate for a second? Real harm was to me. So just to play devil's advocate, though, because if you look right now, I mean, we're recording here on the twenty first. You know, candidly, sneak behind the curtain, folks. We're recording a little early, but you're looking what's happening in Ontario, Canada. I mean, they are though arresting people for being outside, and I think that's a very real concern that we need to be addressing because. If for some reason we were to continue to see this narrative embraced as it being the the end all be all of human existence, then of course people want to right. make the most dramatic actions. In this case, reactions. Right. And, and that's and, what our political system. Right. So, yeah. but but isn't that necessarily it, important for us to make sure that we're correcting the narratives from the onset? Right. To make sure that and that's not necessarily a. a Argument right. saying we shouldn't be talking to people and helping like build the solutions. So I agree with right. that. But also, when you do see things that are just factually incorrect, to at least address them. Right. No, and that's and that is very true. And and we have a responsibility to do that. Everybody has a responsibility to do that. Um, I'll I'll come back uh, with a cautionary note about that in a second. Um, but in terms of you know, the, the, we didn't see that happen quite as much, the sort of coerciveness with people in their homes um, in this country. We're lucky that could have happened. My concern that kind of echoes your concern is that we're, now that we have this technology where we can see viruses coming that are, you know, and I don't want to trivialize this for anybody who lost somebody or got really sick, but are medium bad that are sort of worse than the flu we're used to, but are also not the bubonic plague that's going to be, you know, remembered for thousands of years, right? We can see these things coming. The, que- the, the question is now, is everything we see coming going to be treated as this, you know, horror story waiting to happen, which obviously it won't be. Obviously, on average, most things are going to not be quite as bad as this, Um even if, um, well, and, and really quick, because there's, there's, there's so many mistakes people made, and I'm sorry, I keep jumping from. Yeah, this. I keep thinking of another one I want to say. But because, but really quick, because yeah. I, I I do see though part of the concern that I had from the beginning was that yeah. the the arguments that we're seeing being used for the pandemic are already being used to address the very thing that you were first on the program for, and that was climate change. So we're seeing that right. just because the narrative has been set on is is like this is the framing right so in sales we talk about when you're framing the conversation this is pre-framing to say well we did it for this why can't we do it for this right and can we all make this little sacrifice that's that that's setting people into a mindset which i mean can't we call it for what it is so so i'm gonna i'm gonna make a point that i think is gonna surprise a lot of people but is but is a very which is that I think if you look at this from the other direction, from the not perfect compliance, this is actually really bad news for things like the Green New Deal, um, which says, you know, we want to reduce 
our use of, you know, these greenhouse gases by 100% in 50 years, or we have 12 years to do this and we're all going to die, right? And which, um, you know, if we hadn't seeded all that ground, that would look a lot, that would, that would look more obviously ridiculous to more people. It looks obviously ridiculous to me. But, um, you know, there's this sort of myth out there that this whole thing could have been perfect, right? That if there had just been, if, if, if these if these people on TV, if these libertarians or these MAGA people just wore their masks, right, then, then everything would have been perfect. And A, that's not true because even, you know, even if the masks and the social distancing work, they don't cut cases by 100%. And second, it's systemic that there, that those things aren't going to be perfectly complied with, right? You know, everybody's been outside when you forget to wear your mask or you forget to put it up. And guess what? You know, the, the, the most ardent left-wing or Andrew Cuomo supporter forgot their mask at some point, too. And so these things can't be perfect. I think one of the myths that our political system proved incapable of dealing with, at least at like a state or a national level, was that this was never going to be perfect, right? Because if one side said that, then the other side would have made hay about it and we would have, you know, and, and, and the first side would have suffered politically. So we could never really be totally honest about that. That's a little bit of why I don't like it's not that badism here because I think instead, if we had said this isn't going to be perfect, then here's the way you avoid economic at least a decent amount of the economic damage that happened without, and, and you still, you know, have people not mill about as much, um, is you make it voluntary, but you disseminate information, you work with people and you say, hey, why don't you try to cut your trips outside your house for this month by 80 to 90%. But um, we're not going to force businesses closed. We're going to let them collaborate with their knowledge, with their on the ground information. Maybe some of them will reduce their hours and they'll coordinate when they do that. And maybe your neighbor will get this for you. And maybe you'll, and that sort of thing. And the thing is you would have had less economic damage then because people would have known, people know what their most essential trips are. The government doesn't know that your most essential trips are the same for everybody and the little list that you provide. Right. And so and so that alone, when you start multiplying at times, you know, billions of decisions really reduces the economic damage. But in terms of the sheltering in place, which was never going to be perfect anyway, it gets you about the same result. Now, the problem is that would have involved honesty about the fact that this was never going to be perfect and there were always going to be risks, which are which didn't want to say that proved impossible. Um, the, the sort of assumptions that a lot of people make, I think we both think faultily that um, that the government is the entity that has to be responsible for all of this um, really leads us astray. You know, you, you got um, the when you ask these as big questions. Yeah, that was, I think, the, the most confusing thing to a lot of people. Because if you had said to people, you know, how many lives would you save if you just didn't drive this year, right? It might have been, you know, it would probably be an astonishing looking number if you looked at it at a national level. But we've decided to take those risks and we've decided that conscientious individual choices are how we're going to handle that because 
even if there's, you know, sort of denial among some people out there and they don't want to admit it, it's not perfect. But in that situation, they're used to doing one thing. So I would, you know, I would have friends who would sit there and say, well, we have, we can't, you know, when, when the vaccination started to happen, and especially when the older folks got vaccinated, who were really the ones this is brutal on, is they'd say, well, we still have to, you know, do everything exactly the same. But then you'd see that they were a little less careful with their masks, and maybe they didn't put them on as much, and maybe they went out a lot more, and maybe they were comfortable with that. And so it was hard for people to sort of say that and kind of, and I don't think that's the, your point is well taken about what you couldn't say in the beginning. I think this is something different, which is people are in sort of denial about these risks. But if you look at their sort of individual behavior, they're less worried. And that may be part of the adjustment process. That may be a way that some people let go of this. But is Max, sort of slowly like that. But they um, vote, though. They vote differently. And that's maybe... Right. So this is, and you know this, you're an economist, right? So people yeah, yeah, obviously yeah. are going to act differently than they're going to say that they're going to, they're, they're, they right. act, right? So instead right, of- they are going to vote them, yeah. Right. So in, in that's something that I think is being maybe a little mm-hmm. underlooked at because when they do go and vote, there is real life policy implications that for, in this case, much worse <laughs> end up causing more, more harm than good. So I think it's great to, yeah. to say we need to build these solutions, but it's also just as important to identify in, in this case. So if we're looking at it from right. a sales perspective, right? If you're going in and you're looking at government as the incumbent vendor in this case, right. you have to go through and establish what the pain point is. What is this right. issue that's going to make the person go from where they are now to this better future? And then it's on us to, again, yes, to your point, present that other solution. But we do have to make sure we're effectively articulating what the actual mm. problem is. And part of the problem has been, right. and it can't, I don't think it can really be denied, part of the problem has been the way that people have voted. And people end up voting a lot based on the way that they're approaching politics in the emotional aspect, right? Because they've been so conditioned in in many cases to, to get very fear, fearful of, of not just the what's out there and the unknown, but now just their people that they, they live with, the people that are around them, their fellow man. You're just supposed to look at people just with your eyes and not be able to see, are they smiling behind the mask? And mm-hmm. it's made it very to a point that we're almost desensitized to each other, I think. And it goes right in into the mindset of just divide and conquer. So I, I say all that because I want to know, Max, like what can we do? And, and I'll, I'll say from your perspective to better yeah. present not just the solutions, but also making sure you were still effectively addressing the, the original problem. And that is, in this case, the manner in which people are voting and the policy that's coming from those votes. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things um, that we can better better um, better address is that individual freedom and the government leaving you alone doesn't mean you don't help you don't look out for other people right it doesn't mean you don't cooperate um it doesn't mean and so one thing that one mistake i think a lot of my friends made was focusing so much on the masks because um frankly of all the damaging things in all of this, I don't think the masks were that high on the list. They they weren't fun to wear, they, they, you know, but, and it's, it, it's a compelling piece of symbolism, but it alienates 
just as many people as it energizes. And in the end, I don't know what the cost, the economic cost, at least of that was. Whereas the um, business closures, the shelter, the school closures, you know, the impact on kids, I think that is, you know, it, 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 this is again, something where I don't want to minimize the impact of this, but if you took a survey of elementary school kids, grandparents and great grandparents and asked them, um, would you accept a little bit more risk so that your kid can go back to school? Um, my guess is a huge majority of them would say yes. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we should treat, you know, their risk, you know, casually or that sort of thing. But that was one of the things when, when, when I when I when my list of, of, of things of points about this and things that were missed was getting too long. One of them was one thing that was missing that I keep saying was heterogeneity across the board. The fact that we had to treat everybody the same. Um, I'll tell you than anybody else was um, poor people, especially in big cities, because and people in nursing homes. Um, they them actually first. Um, vulnerable populations and like urban poor housing second, because those were the people who were most likely to get the disease at home, right? Because they lived in dense conditions in the home, right? And because we couldn't, um, part of it is sort of the expert's fault, right? Because just like in our econometric models, their epidemiological models sort of, uh, you know, can't it, it gets too complicated when you you know try to put everybody's you know different kind of living condition and really model it and quantify it and that sort of thing so that's part of the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of treating everybody the same but um that and and then you know when when we see those kinds of things and and poor people getting screwed over by that to the left here's what happens is you know i started reading these magazine articles this summer um from the left that where they would say things like well, we have to focus on building more equitable cities in the future. And I was thinking like, you know, the people in like housing projects right now don't have time to wait for your more equitable cities. Okay. You know, so maybe like give them an extra bottle of Lysol. Um, and that might help more than your daydreaming about what equitable city you're going to build. That's not going to work anyway. Um, and I didn't see much of that. You know, I, I, I can't say for sure that there was none of that, of, you know, sort of efforts to say, well, these people are living in the kind of housing they are. So what should they be doing differently to, to sort of stop the spread than, you know, me living alone in a big apartment or something like that? Um, but I didn't see very much of it. It wasn't sort of... Um, the, the the thing that politicians kind of got rewarded for here, which is a big problem, I think. And it, you know, that's where a lot of the deaths came from, frankly, um, from a spent from nursing homes, from the urban poor, that kind of thing. If you had allowed for the fact that th that those people were in different circumstances, instead of saying it's unacceptable that they're in different circumstances. So 30 years down the road, we better make sure that that, you know, that that costs lives, frankly, that kind of attitude of of we can't accept that they're in, in different circumstances because you're not going to change that over the lifespan of a pandemic. So I think maybe um, I'm, I'm figuring so it out. Save lives by being real about that. Sort yeah. Of thing. Oh, I'm think, I, I think as you were talking, I'm figuring it out because originally what sparked this conversation was I had tweeted, yeah. if you're explaining, you're losing. 
right? And and you right. kind of took a little issue with that. I and issue. yeah, I said I said we got to talk about that because I couldn't disagree more. But right. I think we may have to talk about different things. Right, but and, and I but I do think yeah. it, it kind of goes into maybe exactly yeah. though this point because here's yeah. maybe the the problem is that when this started and the COVID pandemic started. You weren't allowed not only to ask the question, but the explanations weren't real. <laughs> and and people just weren't explaining right. things because there was no real rhyme or reason to what we were doing. It was more so, we don't know what's going on, time out. And as, yes, data came out, right. states like Florida, I mean, Governor DeSantis has pretty much gone on the record of being one of the best governors mm-hmm. looking at the actual data. I mean, he was working with the signers right. of the Great Barrington Declaration be, be pretty much before right, any right. other you know governor because he was trying to follow what right. was actually happening and he protected right. the nursing homes primarily. And that's why Florida, mm-hmm. despite being one of the oldest states and one of the more populated states, is kind of middle of the pack in terms of their overall COVID cases and deaths. So mm-hmm. I think part of it is because we as libertarians inherently want to explain things because we know that it sometimes can be hard to understand the ideas that we believe, but right. I don't. I don't think sometimes that's the best way to get people to want to be curious. I think partly yeah. that's why being so bold against the lockdowns from the onset would would have mm-hmm. been, and I still think is the best way to get people to say, "Well, tell me more about this Libertarian Party." Not so much because mm-hmm. it's we're saying we don't think that people that their their safety or security yeah. matter, but rather that right. we know the implications yeah. and it gets people to ask more questions, mm-hmm. but also entering into the conversations where people already are at. So, I mean, maybe that's where my, I think if you are explaining your losing comes more into some context. So maybe I'd like to hear your reaction there, Max, to that. Right. So, so, so one difference in background between the two of us is, is you're involved much more directly in politics and in sort of engaging voters. And I'm an economist, right? I'm supposed to be this egghead studying numbers. And, you know, actually I am a lot more political than, than a lot of sort of academic economists, but, you know, to me, my first instinct was not to fight for something. My first instinct was to step back and watch and learn. And um, so that doesn't mean that the Libertarian Party shouldn't um, have done that. I, you know, I won't apologize for allowing myself to be in the wilderness on this a little bit because I think you do come to new understandings and I think you can do it better in the future. Part of the the reason I won't cast stones that people didn't um, do that immediately is it happened so fast. And frankly, I wish, you know, I wish I could go back in time and write papers about what private responses to this would look like and and show people that there were other options, because I do think that at the times all we could say was no. And um, that um, would not necessarily have been the best course. I don't count as they were, were the best course, but... Um, again, this was not, it, would people say 1918 or the, you know, flu epidemics that happened in the 60s, technology is so different now that we had options open to us that we never had before. So nobody ever had to answer questions like, do this many million or 100,000 people die or do you not go out to dinner for 18 months? 
Now that sounds really trivial when you sort of put it like that, but when you multiply those dinners and everything else by everybody and you start looking at the mental toll of it and you start, you know, that's when that, to me, that's, that's a problem with collectivism, with collectivizing that question, with making it so big, um, is that, you could say that about many things, many of the risks we take in modern society. When you step out into, you know, a city and there's lots of traffic or you drive a car or you, you know, get the flu or, you know, the, the, there, there are lots of things that if you sort of collectivized to that point, it would be hard for But we um, I do think that actually this, at this point, this transcends politics. I think that once the people who were the most vulnerable to this, you know, namely elderly people or people with some condition that made them more vulnerable, got their vaccinations, um, I think a lot of the talk remained, you know, in being locked down. And maybe in Philly, it is locked down, much less so here. And I at least noticed that people were much more willing to go out once, you know, when my 72-year-old mother um, was vaccinated, uh, who was, you know, the person in that age group who I saw the most at that point. Um, I was, I was at, 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 at that point, you know, before that I was more conscientious and careful. I'm still conscious and careful, but I was much more willing to go up because again, I risk profile in this, it may be worse than the flu or it may be worse, but it's closer to 2019 than it is to 2020. And, you know, there's no such thing as not to, as zero risk, you know, when you live your life, when you step outside your door. And so, you know, at that point, I think uh, it, it disappoints me from some uh, from the lockdown supporters that at that point that they're trying to put the brakes on that, because I think at that point, you know, we're we're back in a world where conscientious individual decisions are what we're, we've always let govern those things, which for a reason, because we can still live our lives at that point and not go insane sitting in houses for a year. Um, but, um, but, you know, it, it, it's, <laughs> I keep saying, I think Anthony Fauci is afraid to not be on TV anymore. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, and, and, and that's even, you know, that, that's maybe that's a human thing. Maybe when you go through a really intense year and that's what you're doing, you sort of like get used to it. And you, it because it seems at times like he's clinging to like, oh, we still got to do this when, you know, maybe we don't. Um, I thought the FDA, this was a good moment for libertarians. When, when the FDA, out of an abundance of caution, said no Johnson & Johnson vaccine, people were mad. I saw very few people support that. Um, you know, my very left-wing mother um, was said, this is ridiculous, you know. Um, and I think that that was a successful teachable moment in a way where people saw that maybe a government agency had different incentives. You know, if you work for the FDA, um, you know, and 10 people die because of a vaccine, maybe you lose your job or something like that. And, you know, even if that's totally wrong, but your incentive becomes minimizing the number of people who die from a vaccine. Now that's good in isolation, but that's not the only thing that's happening in the world, right? And in fact, that's, uh, that, that will almost surely cost more lives in COVID just given how few people, you know, struggled with, with that vaccine. And so, 
Um, I think that was a moment where, where the government was exposed a little bit in a way that, that people almost couldn't argue with. And because, you know, because then it's not a political story and it's not the sort of satisfying confirmation bias kind of story. You know, if you were someone who was very pro lockdown and you, you know, said these darn libertarians and MAGA hat wearers aren't wearing their masks. If you were slated to get that Johnson and Johnson vaccine and you couldn't get it, now you're not going to get anything else for two months. You're pissed off, right? You're not going to, you're not, your first response is not going to be to weave it into a political story. And that's not, you know, that's not something that's unique to one side, but that's a personal, you know, story. And again, which is, something we, we, we've touched on a few times here and, and that it's important for me, it's important for you, it's important for all of us in the way we communicate to, to do that a little more. Well, Max Gulker, unfortunately, we are already at the time where we have to get ready to say goodbye. So for the folks who are watching, I know time goes so fast. There's really nine more topics we're supposed to talk about. I know, we're already at like 40 minutes. It happens fast. So we'll have to make sure we have you back in the program. But for folks who are watching the YouTubes, they can see here at the bottom at Max G underscore Econ. And we will make sure as well uh, that for folks um, who are looking to uh, to find that in the traditional show notes, that will be available as well. But Max, with that being said, let's... Let's go, go ahead and give you a, the last word here in the program. If you can leave the, the audience with any uh, words of wisdom. Oh, you know, that, that, that's like telling someone to be funny. Make it, it gets, it gets very hard to be funny. When you do that. <laughs> um, just, um, you know, don't assume that um, people, there's no better way to learn than to look at people who disagree with you and not assume they're stupid and evil and figure out why they might disagree with you. That doesn't mean you have to change your mind. That doesn't mean you have to put your principles on the line. Um, you know, I was pushed on Twitter on something yesterday when I was criticizing the fact that um, marijuana laws are um such that I feel like states are more monopolizing it rather than legalizing it. They're sort of becoming the monopoly pot dealers in a way. And that you could argue that's a step in the right direction, especially if arrests go down and that's, and that's fine. But um, somebody pushed me on that in a way that I thought was wrong, but it helped me understand why I thought I was right. More. Um, if, if I only got likes and retweets from that, that might feel really good. Right. But um Listen to the people out there who disagree with you. It's not going to make you less principled. It's going to make you stronger in how you understand your own principles if you do it with curiosity. All that's right. my best. That, that's what I, I like it. I like it. Max Gulker, as always, right. a fantastic conversation. Thank you so always. much for joining the program, and we'll make sure we have you back on for part two of this conversation because it's just the tip of the iceberg. But as always, thank uh, yeah. you so much, Max, for joining the show. I think I've reached friend of the show status. So you, you have. Anytime you want me. For sure. Max Gulker, thanks for joining the program. I always appreciate it, Brian. Thank you. Get ready to start your new morning ritual with our new sponsor, Mudwater. Coffee is one of America's favorite beverages, with more and more people starting their coffee habits every day with a cup of that flavorful anxiety juice. But let's be real. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm working on getting more coffee into my life? Millions of people complain about the jitters that come from coffee consumption. Our morning coffee rituals can be habit-forming and, for some people, can make getting a good night's sleep almost impossible. And while nearly all of us like the smell, taste, and ritual of our morning coffee, why not explore eliminating the negative aspects of our morning brew? Well, what if your coffee replacement helped induce alertness, not dependency, improve mental capacity and function, improve physical stamina and performance, improve immunity and overall health? Oh, and by the way, it tastes good enough to drink every single day. Meet Mudwater. 
Mud water is your fastest growing coffee alternative in the market, consisting of organic ingredients lauded by cultures both old and young for their health and performance benefits. With one-seventh the caffeine of coffee, Mud gives you the natural energy and focus you expect from coffee, but without the jitters and crash. With an organic blend of mushrooms and ingredients like cacao, marsala chai, turmeric, lion's mane, and more, Mud Water offers a beverage like no other. Whether you want to enjoy it hot, cold, as a latte, or however you take your coffee in the morning, Mud Water is the zero sugar, zero crash, zero jitter alternative, sure to leave you feeling recharged and refocused. Listen, I'm really excited to have Mud Water as a sponsor here on The Brian Nichols Show because I've been able to see the Mud Water difference for myself, and you can too, so click the link in the show notes to get some mud, support the show, and get your new morning ritual started right with mud water. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up my conversation with Max Galker. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Max, for joining the program. Uh, this is the conversation that we need to be having, and I think this is the conversation we're seeing more libertarians having of how we're going to actually go out and speak to people in order to change hearts and minds. And, and I'm hoping that as we have more of these conversations, we can look to point to examples of what's been working. I know we've been having a lot of success here in reaching people. So folks, as you're going out and having the conversations like Max and I were having today with folks outside of our movement, I would love to hear about it. So please go ahead and make sure you share those stories with yours truly. And you can tag me at B Nichols Liberty, Twitter, Facebook, minds.com and parlor.com or email me Brian at Brian Also, if you've not had the chance, yet of course this is a video program as well so head over to the youtube version you can check out the program a day before everybody else 8 p.m eastern time the day before the traditional episode airs so make sure you head over there hit that subscribe button that little bell and also give every single episode a like I greatly appreciate it. Also, Apple Podcasts, if you haven't yet, they give us a five-star rating and review. Tell folks why you get value out of the program. And yes, of course, our Patreon is alive and well. And for $5 a month, you can become an entry-level member of the Brian Nichols Show Supporting Listeners Group. And every single supporting listener gets, you can see it over my shoulder, but I'll pop it up here on screen. It'll be easier for you to see one of these amazing don't hurt people. <laughs> don't hurt people. Don't take people's stuff. Bumper sticker. Uh, it's a fantastic way to get people to ask some questions and say, will you tell me more? And of course, we uh, Liberty folk, we love to tell people more. Uh, some housekeeping. Did you get the chance to check out yours truly over on the Naturalist Capitalist with Reed Coverdale? We talked about selling liberty. How can we meet people where they're at? It was a great conversation with Reed. Thank you, Reed, for having me over on the program. Also, I had the chance, and we talked about it here for the past few months, I had the chance to go ahead and moderate an amazing panel over at microdose.buzz, The Heroic Dose. We talked about psychedelics as an alternative form of therapy to those both in the military, but also first responders uh, groups who desperately need help. PTSD, depression, anxiety. It is an unspoken pandemic that is taking place right now with our military personnel. A terrifying stat, by the way. 5,000 troops, I believe it was, had passed away. I forget the time frame in the war over, uh, I think it was in Iraq. Uh, since then, those troops, though, we've had 100,000 veteran suicides. This is a conversation that nobody's having, and uh, if they are, they're not having an opportunity to have a loud platform. So for the chance to have folks um, on the program who both were having uh, use those uh, different forms of, of therapeutic drugs, psychedelics, psilocybin, um, ibogaine, and so forth. It was great to learn. Um, and that's candidly how I think we are able to best help other people is to help them realize that they're learning without realizing that they're learning. That's how I know a lot of us joined the liberty movement is something was 
sparked inside us and it made us want to learn more. And that's how we need to be approaching things as well, folks. Not going out and preaching, but rather trying to get people to ask more questions, to ask why. Tell me more. And that's something I think we had a great chance to, uh, to go ahead and do with that conversation that we had. Come back here uh, on Thursday with Microdose. Now, coming up here on Wednesday, I am very excited. You get to hear from one of our awesome sponsors here in the show, and it's kind of sticking into this same realm of alternative forms of uh, medicine. Addison Todd, he is the CEO, founder, and chief poobah over at Ebles.com. That's right, E-A-B-L-E-S, Ebles. That's right, folks. Um, you get to meet the, the guy behind uh, Ebles, as well as Delta 8 THC. We get to learn what is Delta 8 and how has that entered into the marketplace and and how could you possibly go ahead and help support a sponsor of the show while also supporting the program and get Delta 8 delivered right to your door? What? Yeah, you're going to have to go ahead and make sure you learn more uh, by hitting subscribe so you're not missing our awesome episode airing here on Wednesday and for you video listener on Tuesday night. So with that being said, folks, thank you so much. Go ahead, check out my conversation with Reed Coverdale over on his YouTube channel, The Naturalist Capitalist. But with that being said, folks, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Max Gulker. We'll see you Wednesday. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Audio production for The Brian Nichols Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to william at dbpodaudio.com.